Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni and this is episode 74 of Pixel Sift. Each week we do this show uh, where we look at the uh, gaming news, we look at stuff that's making the rounds in the world of developers. Uh, we talk to people who make amazing games like Yonder, the Cloudcatcher Chronicles, and we're joined this week by Cheryl Vance and Joel Styles from Prideful Sloth. We're very excited to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. Good to be here. <laughs> and we'll be taking a look at some other stuff today, Mitch. What else are we checking out? Yeah, so we're taking a look at the target demographics of consoles, who's playing what. And lastly, what happens when players use mechanics like QuickSafe a little bit too much? And does that move the feel of the games from what away from what the developer has intended? Let's jump in, shall we? Did you know Pixel Sip is available on other platforms? You can find previous episodes on iTunes, Pocket Casts, YouTube, and on the Pixel Sip website. So this week I was reading an article by Nathan Birch. His piece criticized PlayStation and Xbox systems for not fostering the growth of the gaming community. His main point was that at the moment, both Microsoft and Sony seem to be pushing more games for mature audiences, with Nintendo seeming to be the only system catering toward a more younger gamer. Now, Joel and Cheryl, you're making a game that's catering towards, and correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like it's catering towards a younger gamer or maybe a family-friendly sort of title. Do you agree with this assessment that uh, Nintendo is the only one that's kind of pushing things in that direction? So, first off, actually, you know, the game that we're making is the game I wanted to play, so we're targeting me. So, it's actually a byproduct um, that we found that the game has a much broader appeal than we ever realized it did. And it's wonderful to know that it can actually reach a larger audience, including, you know, younger family members. So um, as for consoles, we're, you know, we've been working with Sony very closely on making, you know, as well as PC, but specifically to answer the console question with Sony. And we've got a lot of support from Sony to bring Yonder out. So that's a really interesting one. Um, I, from my point of view, they're very they're very nurturing and fostering of our project. So, and I think they want to broaden their demographics. Do you think there's a uh, there's often a question when we have uh, big press conferences that it's your big AAA titles at your E3s and things like that, and they seem to be targeted at a specific type of audience? Um, do, do you think this is a, a, a misinterpretation of that targeting, and that maybe people are only seeing the things that they want to see, and they're not seeing things that uh, you know are not immediately catching their eye? I think ultimately it's where the money's at, or it's at least perceived where the money's at. 
Um, so for the main part, you know, we've had this industry which for the longest time has been targeting um, like, you know, the male-centric uh, younger to, to teen to um, uh, maybe 30 years of age sort of demographic. And that's what we've known. That's what we've really done well at for how long now. But now that the whole world is considered a gaming audience. I think that's that's really opened up uh, those horizons. And honestly, I think it's it's just the the speed of adoption and the speed of um, knowing how to market and really uh, attract that audience. I, I think that's the big question at the moment is just how to uh, really get that audience and and and. Uh, just basically, um, it, it's not a question of the product. It's just how to talk and reach out to those audiences. With your game, how are you kind of reaching out to the people that you'd like to play your game or would find value in playing your game? Um, you know, what are some of the tactics that you're kind of employing to do that? So we've um, we've actually got a PR firm in place too. And so we're we're utilizing them heavily to go out to the media because the media has a much larger reach as a whole than we do as an individual independent studio. And it would take us a long time to build up even a small sliver of a community that some of these larger um, outlets have. So that's a big, a big point for us. Having said that, we still also make sure that we use social media, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, those are kind of our two main sort of outreaches. And then also we were very active within the Steam community on our discussion forums there as well, too, because we want to make sure that we're talking to all the different people who might be invested in Yonder and making sure we try and deliver to them what, they, what they're looking for. You talked about making the game that you wanted to play and something that you were looking to enjoy yourself and you found that it had this broader appeal. How did you kind of discover that and, and how did you has that had any impact on the way that you've made the game into the future? Um, so it was, it was by happenstance that we gave a copy of a build to some friends and they didn't play it. They gave it to their two youngest daughters to play and they loved it. And that's kind of where we learned that we probably had a broader audience than we realized, um, which is an interesting conundrum because that also starts impacting things like how you write your game as well, too. How much how many words you start displaying on the screen and a number of other things that, you know, fall into that. But a um, bit of a rabbit's hole to go down to talk about all the things that that um, introduced to us. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's how we um, started it. Um, as for how we sort of, I guess, continue to develop and work on that and how we continue to talk to those audiences after development. Um, it's, I think, more of a thing of just basically those, um, those two young girls were kind of our test case for a long time, and they continued to play it and look at it as we were developing it. And our first time of getting a broader audience's hands-on was at PlayStation Experience back in December when we first announced the game. And that went really well. And then again, we showed it off at um, PAX East in Boston. And that was that was great because that gave us such, those two shows gave us such a broad audience to sort of get feedback and understanding of audience types out of. Is there a, I know you talked about a lot about the community you're building on Steam and the support that you've had from PlayStation as well. Do you think there is a, a a platform that 
Yonder just wouldn't work on? Is there something that you think just isn't a good fit? Well, for the most part, um, we've talked about different platforms that, you know, we would love to see it on or like uh, how it would change the dynamic of the game. And for the most part, I think um, a lot of it comes down to just the technical capabilities of a platform. Um, so, for instance, we'd love to see it on a handheld, but like before the Switch, I mean, that just wouldn't have been possible to to see like, you know, a open world, um, like, you know, massive streaming sort of style um, uh, sort of uh, technical requirement, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been possible on the 3DS or, you know, you would have really struggled to push that on Vita. But, um, yeah, I think uh, I think with the Switch now that that's, that's kind of been overcome, so that's something to, to visit again later on. So um, how accurately can you gauge your audience at the moment? Is it possible to find out exactly what ages you're kind of getting through the game? No, not at all. Um, it's 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 too broad. Uh, we had we had kids as young as, without being a parent, I'm going to take a stab in terms of age range of about four or five playing the game at PAX. But then we also had um, some lovely gentlemen that were older, you know, even in their fifties and sixties, coming in and playing the game. So such a broad audience. There was even a um, there was an article written. Oh, and I just was talking with them on Twitter, and I'm going to forget but basically they wrote an article at PAX saying how they walked up to the booth and saw kids playing the game and thought I've made a bad mistake this isn't a game for me but once they sat down and played it they realized it's not they absolutely love the game and we have um they're over in the U.S. and the guys ordered in Tim Tams as well so he's getting himself set up to play the game (laughs) the full Australian experience so (laughs) did did that worry you that some people might be turned off just by I guess, the visual aspect of it? And did that make you make some decisions about how it should look? I think for the most part, it's actually been uh, really eye-opening to see that... Um, well, actually, let me let me just back back a little on this. Um, for the most part, like, we've always been taught in, like, uh, large development and traditional development that, um, like, uh, a demographic is more so defined by... A, a group of habits, like, you know, habitual game playing. So, you know, Harry Hardcore versus Cami Casual. Um, <laughs> and honestly, it's it, like it, it's, at this sort of scale, it, it, that's really not true. Like, you know, you can't really shoehorn um, demographics into those sorts of categories. And we've found that, um, like, for our game, um, even tackling it from like you know just a purely visual sort of point of view like you mentioned um we've had people that are like you know really um excited by that look just because like you know they feel like oh that looks cool it looks cute it looks like you know warm and inviting but then there's others which are like you know the older male more would have fit into the hardcore gaming category they're like okay that looks really nostalgic like oh that reminds me of this thing that i liked 10 years 15 years ago and that's kind of cool as well and i think really um in getting out into these trade shows and talking with people it's really made us realize that putting age groups and genders to to people playing your games does a disservice to everybody including us because what we really realized is we need to talk about people who like certain game mechanics or like certain styles of game or certain paces of game rather than are you 
are you X and Y, we need to say, oh, it's people who like simulation games, people who like farming games, people who like exploration games. We really, um, it, it's just, it's such a broad thing and it really opened our eyes as to how we need to probably internally talk more about our audiences in the future. It's interesting. Um, the the subject of that article who was kind of criticizing, saying that they weren't fostering the growth, you know, has a, a long history of experience with those things. Previously worked at Sony Entertainment Europe, mm-hmm. um, also worked at Microsoft Game Studios for a time. It seems like you, it's kind of from, and correct me if I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but it does seem sort of reductive to kind of be breaking people into this is a new gamer and this is an a hardcore gamer or, or an established gamer. Essentially, that's what he's doing in the article. Actually, is that something yeah. you agree with? That it, that's it's kind of a, a damaging thing to think about as games as as a whole to to break people into just these small little categories. I um I, I and it's not necessarily breaking them into small categories. I think it's just how we define those categories. We need to look at them differently. Um, I mean, it, it's categories exist for a reason because they help give us uh, a starting point in which to hold a conversation and they give us a starting point in which people can all you know sort of come to a common understanding about a conversation so how we change you know whether you like you said the new gamer or the hardcore gamer whatever those are you know we just there's, there's a definite way that we can I'll still understand the types of people we're talking about but tackle it from a different way like I said if I said you know this is People who like adventure mechanics, we all understand what adventure mechanics are too. We all understand what farming mechanics are. And so we strip out the, are you hardcore? Are you new? Whatever. And you start, you know, drilling down into who are the people that like these sorts of play styles? You know, we've got some statistics here and, you know, it says that households that own a device that's used for playing games is 65% or if they own a device that's just exclusively for playing games is at 48%, which is a pretty universal experience. I think it's, you know, it's well known that everyone is, everyone plays games these days. Um, I wonder if that's a take into account people that have both. Yeah. Well, there must be some sort of Venn diagram overlappy sort of circle things yeah. that, have, that have kind of come into that. Um it's really fascinating. And I think this conversation is going to on, be ongoing as we have newer and even, uh, you know, greater types of games for different types of experiences and all that sort of thing. But right now, though, let's jump into our next topic. Pixel Civ! It's not Pixel Civ. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Civ! So joining us over the line, we have Cheryl Vance and Joel Stiles. They're from uh, the studio Prideful Sloth. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about their game, uh, Yonder, the Cloudcatcher Chronicles. Now, for people who haven't seen it, we've been talking about the sort of appeal and, and what sort of people might be interested in your game. What is Yonder, the Cloudcatcher Chronicles? What What is it? So the, the elevator pitch is Yonder is an open world exploration and adventure game with farming, crafting, fishing, and lots of other little fun things to do to spend your time in a beautiful, vibrant world. And how did you build that beautiful, vibrant world? I was watching uh, an interview that you did uh, earlier on, and you were talking about how you wanted to build sort of familiarity into the game so that if even if people had been to a place for the first time, they would kind of know where they were. What are some of the important things about building a world like that? Oh, gee, uh, there's so much that actually goes on behind the scenes to, you know, just make even the smallest of areas. Um, but I guess uh, one of the more interesting things to talk about with that would probably be like, you know, from a more high level approach. So um, when we were designing it, um, 
we kind of did the whole okay cool we'll uh we'll make as much of a as interesting variants of of like you know different areas different things that you can discover and find and we were just trying to throw amounts of things at the problem and it wasn't until we kind of took a step back and thought well what do people actually find engaging what do they find endearing what is meaningful to a person like you know in a in an environment or in a in a uh, situational context um, and from that we we really tried to burrow into like you know just more the things which give a psychological impact so what's a good example of one of those like what's something that you you know has that resonance that people can kind of connect to so a great example of that would probably be uh, one of the areas in the game that we've got is called Dapplewood Forest. And basically it's a, a fairly cliche sort of area of like, you know, a, a very vegetative, um, overgrown forested area. And the thing that we really uh, tried to um, bend that around was that really peaceful, tranquil feeling of like, you know, soft autumn hues and and um, like, you know, sunlight streaming through the leaves, all those sorts of lovely things that you would associate with a British forest in autumn. Um, and so we basically try to pull these sorts of core things um, uh, in, instead of, you know, just trying to go, cool, well, you know, there's going to be trees and there's going to be bushes and there's going to be huts and all these things. We try to instead make it all gravitate or, or orbit around um, like uh, these these nice psychological um, uh, elements. How do you go about that? Is it as simple as, say, you know, flicking through a book of, of photos and saying, yeah, that works? Or uh, do you start with the idea and think, how are we going to achieve this and go look for examples? How do you, you know, build that up? Um, so it's a really interesting process, which obviously it's a bit of a tough one to talk about because there's so many intangible things that are like kind of uh, kind of around this. Like so much of it has got to do with like, you know, what makes you feel comfortable? What makes you feel like something is homely or um, like, you know, uh, even even down to things like um, like, you know, the smell of rain, um, uh, those sorts of things, those sorts of elements that we don't usually consider when when building environments where like, you know, we're just usually looking at what is a cool thing. Um, we're trying to basically find those things that that resonate with people on that sort of level. Um, so that can be individual people in the team like you know they have a they have a fond memory of something or um like you know it's it's a social thing or a cultural thing where it's like okay great there's there's the um the the great love of the the maple forests or the sakura blooms in japan um so those sorts of elements we we try to weave in or uh, use as central topics for these areas You've spoken about uh, when you created Yonder that it was going to be sort of like a safe and gentle world. Um, and why was that such an important uh, thing for you to include in this game? It, it's from probably from for me. Just a lot of the games I tend to play. Um, not all of them. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I have a broad 
uh, you know, repertoire of games I play. But some of the ones that I do enjoy playing and for different moods are, you know, your Harvest Moons, your Story of Seasons, Animal Crossings, those sorts of games where it's more about just going about doing things in your own time as opposed to going about and, you know, being, you know, feeling like you need to rush through something or that you're getting into combat to do things. Um, and it, it's also something that I really wanted, it, it sounds sort of dumb, but I love the fact that I can make a game that my aunt has now gone out and bought a PlayStation to go play, you know, and has bought the game and she's going to play it because she's not a gamer. She's, you know, she doesn't own a console at all. But she's seen the videos and she wants to play it because she wants to learn how to play a game to play it because it's it's something that she's not going to be punished in learning how to play. And to me, that's amazing that I can make something that people who in my family wouldn't have otherwise ever owned a console have now gone out and bought them so that they can pick it up and play it. It's it, it's to me, it's a very special thing. That's got to be uh, an amazing feeling to kind of see people connecting to your game in this way um you know you've had a lot of people kind of play your game at these these consoles uh sorry at the conventions um and having people come up and and play it there are you are people kind of communicating that same sort of experience to you that they've sort of found that familiarity or they've found that connection in, in in something there is that something that people say to you outwardly or can you just see it on their face you can definitely see it on their face there's certain things like um, when the first time people pick up and they jump off the cliff and the umbrella, you know, pops open, you see this amazing delight on their faces as well. Um, but also, you know, just to, just to step back a little bit from the conference side too, and just, we do, we've gotten lots of lovely feedback, but you know, that's, that's a little bit of a bubble when you take that into account, because at the same side, Somebody would really have to dislike your game to stand around long enough to tell you to your face that they dislike your game. They're more than likely going to walk off and not say anything. So like I said, the feedback has been beautiful, but I also accept that there's an audience out there that probably looked at it and thought, you know, I don't like this game. It's not for me and walked off and never said anything as well. Do you think, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've had any experience with that, but, you know, having that experience of seeing people play your game in real life is different, obviously, to people talking about it online. How has the online community sort of been and and what are sort of some of the things that you've got from from their experience of of looking at the game? I've actually found it a very odd experience this time around. Like, um, we come from a like a, a more traditional development AAA sort of background. And so we're used to like, you know, just release a game, don't read the comments because 90% of what you read is just going to be horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. But it's been the uh, absolute opposite this time around, which has been really odd. We have a lovely community. Um, uh, the people on Twitter, on Steam, um, you know, I mean, I, I like I said, I totally get that there's a group of people that don't want to play our game, and we understand that. You know, that's that's kind of the point of a free market, isn't it? You don't have to buy what you don't want to <laughs> buy. So, but, you know, we're, I'm quite proud of our community. Um, it, they're actually really lovely people. And it's interesting, those that haven't played the game, They, you know, some of them have gone through and watched every gameplay video they can. Some of them have said that they're not watching anything because they don't want to ruin the experience for themselves as well, too. 
Um, so, you know, it's quite a broad range, but it, it's, it, I even had one of the guys reach out and say he showed his um, young son and he's, his young son wants to do his first let's play video and he wants to use yonder. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just, it's such a huge, you know, varying audience, but 90% of it's beautiful. The one that I was surprised at was, um, the, uh, so we've got the demo up, uh, and running in the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, in like Target or Walmart, those sorts of places, they've mm-hmm. got the PlayStation kiosks, the little booths that you can play on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a demo up on there um, in the United States. And we've heard back from a number of people basically saying that they've been driving around trying to find these things so that they can play them. For like hours. And yeah. It's been like two hours of driving to try and find their nearest kiosk so that they can play the demo. Are these people so, organizing? Yeah, Are they on Yonder Watch? Have they got a little uh, geotags and, and things like that as soon as they find a console? Uh, there's, um, I, I do actually think there's a few people trying to share locations of where they found yeah. them. I truly do. We've got, um, speaking of that sort of experience and that people have talked about, uh, Rosha H has asked um, whether the experience of the game is sort of strongly developed with a, with a backstory for the character itself, or is the aim to kind of put the player in the game as a blank slate and they make what they will of it? I would say it's a bit of a mid-ground between those two. We want to give enough context into the world so that you have a goal and that there's a reason to be there and things to do. But we also do want the character to have a bit of a blank slate within that world so that the, each player has a room to interpret and put upon that their own adventures. I liken it to um, sort of playing Skyrim or, you know, the Bethesda games. There's always a story there. But your adventure and my adventure in that game are very different. And we might have the same overarching narrative, but what you did and what I did in the 60 hours to finish that narrative is completely different. And that's what kind of we want to make sure the players have is that ability when they talk about it to have completely different adventures. One of the things I was really curious about, you've talked about coming from a you know bigger studio sort of background and working in a different sort of environment beforehand. How many people are, are working on the game at the moment? Um, and how has that experience been, moving from a bigger team into a, a smaller team to make this game and, and be shipping it next week-ish? <laughs> oh, geez, our, our pulse races when you say next week-ish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ish, I said, it's a bit Sorry. more than next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, our core team is three developers, um, so not many people, obviously. Um, so we've got um, another person on for support um, from like a, a business sort of perspective. Uh, and then we've had the, the very good luck of having a uh, number of um, uh, people that we work closely with as, as outsourcers um, throughout the, the lifetime of the project. And that's around about uh, six or seven other people there, um, but yeah, the uh, the core team is only three people, so that's what we've we've yeah. got on at the moment. And because of the ramp up and ramp down of that, that puts us, like Joel said, at about five to five to six for the main chunk of development. But the first part was actually one to two, and then we ramped up <laughs> to three, and then you know went from there, and now we've ramped back down. So we're like a core team of three, like you said, but we do have some support from social media and business and. All the, uh, it, it takes it takes a lot to make a game. It really does. How long has have you been working on this game from from start to finish? Oh, geez, uh, from start to finish, probably around about three and a half years now, um, possibly a little bit longer. Um, 
But yeah. having said that too, that's, that was kind of working, you know, while we were working and doing things, this was a little thing that we touched on the weekends when we had spare time and we developed a prototype and then we put that prototype down to then, you know, start talking with publishers and talking to people for funding and reaching out and trying to make sure we could get Yonder off the ground. And so full-time development on it has been around six, it's not been a year and a half. I think it's, what has it been? February, February, 2016, we started. So a bit over a year and four months ish almost. Yeah. 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 So I guess we've, we've talked to uh, bringing a wrap back to the PlayStation aspect of it. And, um, like you said, you mentioned you had like booths and stores in America, but like we talked to quite a few Australian developers about that have the opportunity to put their games on the PlayStation Store, and their stories have all been quite different. So, how did the process start for you guys? Um, so we had I actually back in the UK knew somebody that had come from the uh, Sony. I'm trying to think of what their name was. Uh, Basically, it was what would have been it, it was Shahid's team. Um, if you know who Shahid is, um, obviously he's left Sony since then. But I think it's like external developer relations or whatever that team was at the time. And he put us in touch with um, Shahid, and then obviously Shahid went into his team internally, and they did a review of the project and looked at it for suitability. It went through. Um, they have sort of market analysis people in there as well, too, that look at it. So it went through a wide process. And um, Sony was very, very interested in working on the project, um, you know, trying to get it onto PlayStation and work with us to get it onto PlayStation. So we've had a lot of support from them ongoing. And that team, even after Shahid left, and we, you know, we worked with other people as well, too. And now we have Nick in the UK looking after us. They've, everybody's been lovely and supportive to help us get this out. Yeah, I think the main thing there was that uh, Sony's got their finger on the pulse. They know what they're doing. But um, one of the main things that uh, was attractive for them was trying to broaden that audience appeal, which I guess is part of what we've been talking about as mm -hmm. well. Um, and so obviously Yonder is all about a broad audience appeal. So I think from that sort of perspective, that was right up their alley at that point. And I mean, that process and talking to them, and when we say that and we're like, oh, yeah, just through these people, not a problem. That was still probably um, before we got sort of approval and platform approval and and, you know, just internal team support from their um, indie team as opposed to just going solo with um, a release that took six, seven months of time. It, it was not particularly, you know, we, when we gloss over it and say this, it sounds like it was, you know, a week and it was <laughs> it was it was many a month to get through that process. We've got another question from Rosha asking that once you get to the finish line of this game, when you get to that 100% point, you've got to send it off. Is, it, is that satisfying experience? Is it frustrating to be at that point because there's many things you'd like to change? How does that make you feel at that point of the, of the development um, cycle? It's never going to be 100%. That's, it, it, it's like any, any form of art ever. You do it and then you kind of, put it out into the world and you instantly go, Oh no, critique it. All these things are wrong. And so for us, it'll probably never be a hundred percent that we already have a whole bunch of things in the back of our head that we want to do to improve, add to the game add to the experience. And so, you know, we're, we're hoping that, you know, six months, seven months down the road, we're still working and making yonder an even more exciting experience than it is now. 
I can definitely relate to that experience. You know, you can be working on things and they, they don't quite work and you keep looking at yourself in the past and you go, could do that better the next time. So yeah, it, it takes as long as the time you have. Exactly. Absolutely. 100% and I mean, of, we, sorry. We, we felt great getting it. We felt great, you know, getting ready to get it out, but we're still working on it right now. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, sum, submission doesn't mean stop. Submission <laughs> just means that's a cutoff point that you have to accept. And we're still working on it. You know, we're still doing we're still doing point updates on Steam right now before release and getting you know plans in place to do a patch for Sony as well too because we just see all the flaws, um, <laughs> and so we want to fix all the flaws. Well, look, it looks very good. Uh, we're very excited to give it a go when it comes out on the eighteenth of July. Uh, it's called Yonder, the Cloudcatcher Chronicles. Uh, it's on Steam and it's on PlayStation. Uh, you know, Cheryl and Joel are working very hard right now. We've taken them away from that for them to uh, get this game out to you. Uh, if you want to find out more info about it, you can head to yonderchronicles.com. Uh, we've kind of reached the end of the show. Um, we, we would love to have chat to our other topic, but it was fascinating hearing about um, how you've kind of put the, the game uh, together. I've got one sort of final question that I wanted to know. You've worked in this smaller team now, and you've worked in in previous teams uh, which were bigger. What's is it a small team going forward, or would you like to move back into a bigger team for future projects? I think we can each answer that separately. So I'll let, <laughs> I'll let Joel go first. Uh oh. So I, I feel like I've done the big thing. I've done the small stuff. Um, I'd I'd like to aim for a mid tier sort of thing. And I guess by mid-tier, I'm still aiming small. So, like, I, I would be super comfortable with uh, 10 people, um, extremely dedicated and focused people. Um, I think that's the that's the big cincher for me is that um, as you as you grow as a company, as you um, pull in more and more people, you need more management. You need more. Um, <sighs> You need more breadth of of ability, and that really has a huge overhead. And personally, I would like to avoid that. Um, I, I find it much more uh, compelling to work in a in a more agile, smaller sort of setup. I feel like I can do more when there's less um, less is more. Basically, I guess is what I'm saying in this sort of context. And now for the dissenting opinion. <laughs> it's not necessarily dissenting at all. I, I kind of would like to keep it a tad bit smaller. I think five five or six as opposed to ten would be nice. I get where Joel's coming from. Mm. Um, I think the biggest thing is is for us, we saw exactly how quickly when when certain things came about that we could move in, you know, for thanks to Silicon Valley, we can use the word pivot now. Um, so, you know, we could pivot very quickly and, you know, get things done that otherwise weren't on our main path at that point. And that's an amazing thing. We had a point where we had to get, what was it, six or seven builds out in two weeks. And so six or seven SKUs out two weeks. And we had to get our entire localization pipeline in and get text localized and back and tested. And that was we did it. And yet we've all been on, you know, some large teams too. And those sorts of things can take large teams down. And it's not because the teams 
themselves are terrible. They're not. We're working with some of the best people in the world. It's just the larger the ship is, the harder it is to get it to move and steer. And so, you know, I think we do all kind of really appreciate and enjoy the small team, the smaller teams, because we've got we've got the ability to move quickly. Well, look, it's very exciting and it's really, uh, I'm really looking forward to the game coming out next week. Uh, not next week, on the 18th of July, which is a Come Tuesday. Come on, Johnny, we have one job. Oh, I, I, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm going to play it next week, so I'm, I've got that in my head. So, um, uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is uh, Pixel Sift. We do this every fortnight. We also do alternating uh, streams as well. Uh, we can put up all the links to the game. You can find it on Steam. You can find it and add it on your wish list. You can jump on the PlayStation Store, and I think you can pre-order it right now. Um, you can find that website at www.pixelsift.com.au. Uh, where else uh, on the social web, Mitch, can people find our uh, information and links? Yeah, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash pixelsift, twitter.com forward slash pixel sieve twitch.tv well you already know that if you're watching this anyway but twitch.tv forward slash pixel sieve and youtube.com forward slash pixel sieve au and we also have a bunch of previous episodes you can check out you can listen on itunes sorry it's apple podcast you can listen on google play if you're in the states you can listen pretty much anywhere you get a podcast that's it for this week thank you very much cheryl and joel for joining us we're very excited for your game and we'll catch everyone next week thanks so much thank you Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled.